this is a real episode, so you better do a good one. Well, if you like me to do more than one take. Fine. <laughs> I'm going to fuck it up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Death by Music Podcast. I am Jake, as always. I'm here with Cassie and Alex, and we are doing season number three episode, uh, Leonard Skinner. <laughs> yes. You started off so confidently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is the second episode of the third season, which is pretty cool. So today we are covering a requested episode, Leonard Skinner. Um, this is a big one, and it is a sad one. Uh, wow. What that the was my jaw. Fuck? My jaw does that now. I'm old. Please continue. Um, that was wild. Okay, that freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> so today's episode, just FYI, like, I don't know, like any of our episodes, don't listen with your children because it's kind of fucking traumatic. Um, and also we say words like fuck and cunt. So mostly Alex says those words. That, that is true. <laughs> Sometimes Cassie does. Oh, <laughs> it was once and you should have bleeped it. It's yeah. fine. You it's said fine. it like 12 times in one episode. It was really fun. It was to prove a point. <laughs> it, was the, it was the Mindy McCready yeah. episode. And then I recommended that to somebody who is like a country person. I was like, oh, you should listen to our podcast. We actually did one on Mindy McCready and send it to them. And then I listened to it ahead uh-huh. of time just to like remember what we said and the whole first 10 minutes is like us saying cunt <laughs> over and over and i was like well i guess i burned that bridge <laughs> oh no did they ever tell you how they liked it no great so i'm pretty sure i fucked that up all right so leonard skinner plane crash big deal big band still a huge band um and we got so much information on it we used a lot of different sources for this one including trusty wikipedia oh faithful <laughs> leonard skinnerdhistory.com which is a website run by i believe the widows and the the wives and the surviving members so it has a lot of information um like personal information that i think would be harder to find other places because it's like first person source mm-hmm. uh the hollywood reporter which may or may not be credible um <laughs> jordan runtag wrote an article in rolling stone that i used that was awesome ultimateclassicrock.com rollingstone.com had another article i'm not sure who the author is but it was uh basically an overview remembering leonard skinner's deadly 1977 plane crash and then lisa pellegrin on patch.com so those are our sources cassie yeah so i figured since this one was pretty miserable um i had a fun antidote anecdote antidote antidote you gotta don't (laughs) (laughs) i have a fun uh fun little story because this is my first i guess earliest memory of hearing leonard skinner 700 Mm -hmm. times in a row oh um so the year was i don't necessarily remember um but i was like in seventh grade or something (laughs) so the year was approximately 2006 I don't know. No, because I graduated high school in 2007. <laughs> when? Mm-hmm. When? And <laughs> so 2007. Numerical values are no. It would have that was like middle school for me. When did you graduate? T- 2010. So it was 2006. 2005. When I was in seventh grade. It would have been 2000. Like I don't know. 2000. I don't care. Four. <laughs> You're just saying numbers at this point. So it's the numerical values do not matter. It's it's my family and I, we took a road trip to go to Alabama. Um, my oh, uncle's God. retirement was happening there. 
he was retiring from the military. We decided we were going to road trip down. First of all, my my family doesn't usually take vacations together because we just bicker the whole time. So mm-hmm. we're in a car. That's like an 11-hour drive in a car. Oh, I Young know about kids. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it being, you know, the early 2000s, roughly. 2004. We didn't have a streaming service. <laughs> Spotify did not exist. You were stuck with your own devices, which, you know, were literally local radio stations. CD player. Yes, but... You know, my mom had the like Garth Brooks like collections. Hell yeah, I had that too. That was the entire Rod Stewart collection as well. That's probably really good too. Okay, but you got stuck with Leonard's. (laughs) So, on the way down to Alabama from Virginia, you know, again it's like eleven hours. We must have heard "Sweet Home Alabama" like over twenty times. Oh my god! On different radio stations to the point where like when it started with just the opening riff, my dad was like, "No," and would change it. (laughs) Okay, and then we get to Alabama, and it was everywhere it was wow. like restaurants like public spaces we were like why is this song everywhere why i mean i guess you can be very proud of alabama as a state sure whatever They're not even from alabama no i'm just saying in general i guess they were well, proud of the song yeah, being yeah, about yeah. them so they just played it over and over again like i lost count of how many times we heard this song so i really don't think my my brain wanted to a continue to keep that memory of the song that many times but like when I we were going through the rest of writing this episode, I was like, oh, that that's a Leonard Skinner song because I was like, I don't associate anything with them except for Sweet Home Alabama because of this like trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Have you talked to a therapist about it? No, I think she would just tell me to like suck it up. You're being a whiny bitch. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Yeah, I mean, Leonard Skinner has a lot of songs and I'll be honest with you, I uh, I was not not ever really a huge fan of Leonard Skinner, but as with most of the episodes that we do on this show, every time we cover somebody, I have a new appreciation for their music. Yeah. Um, and actually learning about the musicians behind it and where they came from and that they were actually really fucking rad. Yeah. And I have a new appreciation for Leonard Skinner, especially after working at classic rock stations where you hear it nonstop and you're like, okay, I fucking Uh, hate them now. Yeah. (laughs) I I like them again. I like them again, but on my terms. And then when Kid Rock picked it up for a sample. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Which one was that? All Summer Long? Mm -hmm. But that was also the Werewolves of London. That was a whole mashup of samples. Right. Yes. Well, thank you for that story. You're welcome. Sorry mm -hmm. it was whiny. It wasn't whiny. (laughs) It It was, I'm sure so many people can relate a lot of people i mean i have so many conversations with people who are like i'm so tired of hearing this on the radio and i'm like dude i get it yeah i get it but yeah with with all of our stories this one's gonna end in tragedy and this one's real sad so buckle up bitches the date was october 20th 1977 it had been three days since Leonard Skinner released their fifth album, Street Survivors. The band had performed that day at the Greenville Memorial Auditorium in South Carolina and were headed to a show at Louisiana State University. Obviously tired, Leonard Skinner's lead vocalist, Ronnie Van Zant, stretched out on the floor with a pillow of, um, this is on the airplane, trying to catch some sleep before the next stop. There were 23 other people on board, including the rest of the band, their manager, a pilot, co-pilot, and several others. The flights on the Convair CV240 had been pretty uneventful. Passengers were playing cards in the cabin until their pilot, Walter McCreary, came out terrified. And when the pilot leaves the cockpit, what the fuck? Who's flying the plane? He has to pee or he's going to tell you you're dying. 
Yeah, so he was freaked out, and he told the drummer, Artemis Pyle, to go strap himself in. Moments later, the plane was striking treetops. Keyboardist Billy Powell described the sound as rolling down a hill in a garbage can being hit with 100 baseball bats. Had he been in this predicament before? Because that's oddly specific. Oddly specific. (laughs) I'm going to say maybe. That sounds like some Southern shit to do, rolling down hills in in garbage cans. Right. Um, Guitarist Gary Rossington was told days later after recovering in the hospital that his bandmates, Ronnie Van Zant, Steve and Cassie Gaines, their assistant road manager, Dean Kilpatrick, all of them had died, along with the plane's pilot, Walter McCreary, and co-pilot, William Gray. Cassie, not me, was an original member and a backup singer for the band, but had talked her brother Steve into joining into joining the year before. It was obviously devastating to lose both of the members in the band's prime. So let's start from the beginning. Yep. So Gary Rossington... Entered into music in 1964 with his friend Bob Burns. They both learned drums, but you can't have a band with two drummers unless you're Slipknot, then you can have three drummers. So Gary picked up a guitar instead, and he just started playing guitar nonstop. This is a spot I've inserted a Wikipedia link with a list of bands that have had two or more drummers at one time, just to prove you wrong. Okay, well, who are they? Um, Slipknot was one of them. I was going to bring that up to you. ABBA, you bitch. ABBA. (laughs) The Allman Brothers. They only had four people. How'd they have two drummers? Two drummers during their 1977 Australian tour. Hello. Um, <laughs> oh, Arcade Fire, Block Party, um, King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard, Lizard Wizard. <laughs> <Same thing>. <laughs> that <laughs> one. Radiohead. Uh, all of the Radiohead live performances since 2011 have had a second drummer. Uh, Ringo Starr and his all star <laughs> band, bitch. <laughs> we did just talk about them on the minutes. Um Pink Floyd during touring, Rod Stewart, The Roots, Slipknot. Okay. Steely what Dan. I meant was. When you're just Modest a teenage, when you're 15 the and you're National. trying to start a band and you have two drummers, it's probably not going to work. Yes, the band. Oh my god, never mind. You can, have, you can have a band with two drummers only. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. There's a band called Dana Nana 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 Aykroyd. Wow. <laughs> Add it to the playlist. Is it like Batman mixed with Dan Aykroyd? I don't understand this. They're from Scotland, right? On but they're here. like 15 year olds. And they can both only play drums. I know, but I just wanted to be a jerk. <laughs> okay, well, mission accomplished. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Gary Rossington and Bob first met Ronnie Van Zant playing on opposing baseball teams later that year. And here's just a little bit about Ronnie, because we're talking about the story of so many people right here. So yeah. to get all of their beginnings in there, Ronnie had two younger brothers. Johnny and Donnie. Of course, we all know those names are short for Ronald, Donald, and Donald. <laughs> I love. Okay, but true. like I love that all their names rhymed either way. But I would like never do that to my non-existent children because, like, the end. Like when you're getting your name yelled at you when you're in trouble. <laughs> what? Donald. Donald. Oh, you're stuck on that. Okay. Yeah. When you're getting your name yelled at you, and my sister and I, Donald. like. Chelsea, Cassie, like the end of it. Yeah. It was like, wait, who did she say? She said you. You're in trouble. I would just ignore it. Yeah. No, we would get more trouble for that. Are you kidding? Anyway. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) Donald or Johnny for short, currently fronts Leonard Skinner and Donnie or Donald was a founding member. Excuse me, bitch. (laughs) Is that my rug? (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to help. All right, I'm going to try. Oh. <laughs> That's because you announced it. 
Donnie was a founding member of 38 Special. Ronnie worked at his brother-in-law's auto parts store and was said to have had a photographic memory. He was basically a catalog, so he anybody could come up to him and like ask him about parts, and he knew exactly what they were talking about. Ronnie was married twice, and he has two daughters, Tammy, who was born in 1969, and Melody in 1976. Ronnie enjoyed fishing and baseball, uh, though he wasn't a fan of the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Yeah. You love he, he enjoyed the White Sox and the Yankees. You love the Jumbo Shrimp. Oh, yeah. I'm an O's fan myself. Oh, yeah? The uh, Ringos? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, but I used to be a Diamondbacks fan because, duh, Randy Johnson. Right. Yeah, I have no idea who that He's is. He's the pitcher. But, well, he was He's probably got a nice butt. They all have nice butts. We've established that. <laughs> Ronnie came from a tough part of Jacksonville, and the other boys really didn't want to mess with him. He was, like, way bigger than them. Um, his father played both guitar and piano, which exposed Ronnie to music, but he was more of a lead singer type. He showed up for a band audition and basically just said, I'm your new lead singer. And since he could beat everyone up who was there, they were like, okay, um, sure. So next time you need to, t- to like get a job and you go to the interview, you just say, I'm the I'm new hired. person. It's me. <laughs> And see what happens. I'm hired and this is my They'll salary. <laughs> You're going to be like, you need to leave. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> One afternoon, Ronnie accidentally hit and injured Bob with a baseball. But it got the boys talking and they ended up heading over to Bob's parents' house afterwards to jam. Yeah, apparently Ronnie uh, hit Bob in the temple and knocked Ooh. him out. And he thought he had killed Bob. Holy shit. Like he was just knocked the fuck out. Okay, well. Have you ever gotten into a childhood fight? this had me thinking no you didn't ever like try to beat up your siblings no <gasps> am uh, i the only no, one you i didn't i got beaten up i did not beat people up yeah never mind i'm thinking of something else okay <laughs> <laughs> i never beat people up one time i got into um i had these no, fucking no, you, you... german kids that were we were at a festival and these little German asshole kids got these like BB guns and they were shooting me and my friend Rebecca in the ass with their BB guns and it hurt. Yeah. Like fucking stop. And I told my sister Victoria about it and she is mean. Yeah. And she <laughs> filled her purse up with rocks and she started beating oh them. Oh my God. They built, <laughs> they like an, made a circle around and move. she was like, hey, and she was beating these kids with their purse full of rocks. And I was like, wow, that's the coolest thing she's ever done for me. Yeah. Wow. And she probably doesn't even remember it, but I was like, holy shit. That blind rage. Yeah. Yeah. She ripped her shirt off and turn green <laughs> but no i was i never beat anybody up. okay well like sibling wise well i guess in no general. okay my sister would we would beat up on each other all the time i was bigger but i was also a wimp like l7 weenie and it got to the point where one of the times i was sitting on her and just like punching her in the back and she got nice. a hold of my finger and like twisted it all. And I was like screaming. And my dad just ended up like picking us up both by our shirts, carrying us outside of the garage and throwing us both into the pool to like get us to get off each other. Did you get in any fights? No, uh, I got in a fight at school. Yeah, Expelled. really wasn't that bad. It was the last day of my uh, last day of public school because he got expelled. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> Did you? I got expelled, but it was the, the, the following year I went in homeschool. So, oh well, I, it didn't it matter. All, it all I never had out. to serve it. Is that why you did it? Because you knew you were going to be homeschooled. 
you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You yeah. feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. 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 We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We gonna have this like me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play we play with this shit right now. I lie, we play with this shit right now for for real. I gotta lie. Don't play with it, take that shit seriously. No, no, the guy was being an asshole. We were all out in the, uh, we were, the whole class was in the auditorium watching a movie or something in the row behind me. Um, he's like flicking my ear and, and, uh, at the end of the movie, they had like cupcakes and like pop, you know, go grab a can of Coke or whatever. Soda. And, Soda. No. For those that need a translation. <laughs> <laughs> For those that say it correctly, it's pop. He came walking by and I turned to the side to let him pass and he purposely bumped into me i was like that's it and i was like fuck this i'm done and i took the cupcake that i had and i ran up behind him and smashed it on the back of his head and uh then i just like walked away like i just and he came down into the orchestra pit after me he was yelling whatever frosting I, in his I took, hair yeah yeah i took my can of coke and chucked it at him nice and unopened then, uh, yeah unopened hell yeah yeah, then he like tried to tackle me and put me in like a wrestling move, which didn't work. And then I like had him in a really half-assed headlock, and then they, they then broke you got us frosting up. all over your shirt. Yeah, like there was yeah, there was frosting <laughs> everywhere. But yeah, and we went to the office. I got expelled for the first day of next year, but the first day of the next year was homeschool, so I never had to serve it. Nice. Okay. Anyways, so he beat up. Uh, oh, he accidentally hit Bob in the head with a baseball. That's mm-hmm. where we were at. Uh, they went over to Bob's house. They decided to play some music. They set up in the carport, and they played Time is on My Side by the Rolling Stones. And this jam went so well that they immediately decided to form a band, and they started recruiting some members. Ronnie tried to ask this dude, Alan Collins, who he was already playing guitar in a band called The Mods. He, he went over and asked Alan if he would join, but just the sight of Ronnie rolling up in his car scared Alan off. He rode away on his bicycle and ran into a tree. So Ronnie was several years older. It was a bit intimidating to see him just like rolling up on his house. Yeah. And as we mentioned before, Ronnie was like the big dog of the neighborhood. You know, yeah. they'd go play football or baseball. And a lot of the times it would just end up turning into a free-for-all because of a bad play or something would happen. They'd just be a big old fight. So Yeah. And Ronnie also idolized Muhammad Ali, and he wanted to be a boxer, so I would not be surprised to hear he got in a few scraps in his younger days. Once Ronnie convinced Alan that he wasn't a threat, Alan decided to join the group. Shortly after, they added Larry Junstrom on bass and called themselves My Backyard. I guess that Bob's mom's carport was taken. I bet it was. Uh, The group did go through a few name changes from My Backyard to Noble Five to The One Percent by 1968. But you really have to be careful naming a band like with a child, you have to consider all of the ways that people can make fun of you for your name. Yep. People started saying that their band had their band had one percent talent in 1969. <laughs> so Bob suggested that they call themselves Leonard Skinner. Um, that's Skinner. This was a two-part reference. 
referring to a character in a comedy song called Hello Mudda, Hello Fada. That's a great by song, Alan by the way. Sherman. Okay. <laughs> and then the other part of the joke was on the boys' PE teacher, whose name was Leonard Skinner, um, at Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, no relation to Seymour Skinner of The Simpsons. That's always what I think did, of. Did the gym teacher sue for likeness, though? Leonard Skinner was a real cunt. Specifically, he wouldn't let the boys have long hair. And no. that's a rule that eventually caused Gary Rossington to drop out of school. That's right. He was suspended for having long hair and he just never came back. Lacey Van Zant, who was Ronnie's dad, actually went to the school and explained to the administration why it was important for Gary to keep his long hair. You see... Gary's father had died after he was born. He was in the army and Gary was making money for his single mother by playing in the band. Gary couldn't cut his hair because then he'd be a nerd and their band wouldn't be cool and he wouldn't make money and he couldn't support his mom. Long hair was a part of the job. Uh, that explanation didn't quite work. Gary ended up dropping out to just pursue Leonard Skinner full time. I mean, at least he as a dad was on board with the rock and roll. The fact that he was cool with like all the boys having long hair. Yeah. It's cool in my book. Fuck yeah. They officially changed the spelling of the band name to have all of the Y's about as early as 1970. And while Leonard Skinner, the man, was their nemesis in school, the band did eventually bury the hatchet with him. He would go on to introduce them at a concert in Jacksonville, and he also allowed the boys to use his photo on their third album. So he didn't sue for like this. Nope. <laughs> he actually let them use it. He was like, hell yeah, I'm famous, bitches. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I watched a few interviews with Leonard, and uh, he really seems like he was an all right guy. This is obviously after the fact, like years, mm -hmm. years later. So who knows how he actually was in the school. But it kind of seems to me like he was really just doing the administrative thing. This yeah. is a rule. You got to follow it. It wasn't just him. Like there were other teachers sending him, you know, everybody to the office for violation yeah he just happened to be the guy that everybody hated he probably did it more than everybody else is what i'm assuming that so uh leonard skinner was growing quickly in jacksonville they were headlining their own local shows as well as opening for national acts the group linked up with a management team and continued to perform their blues rock throughout the south they really cultivated the southern rock sound they were combining elements from country blues and even british rock in 1972, Leonard Skinner was playing a high school prom. Billy Powell, who was a piano wizard, and he, he was basically a road crew kid for the band, he was finally able to showcase his piano abilities at the prom. Um, what I read was they just had a piano set up. He'd been doing shit for them for several years at that point, just setting up their instruments and whatever. And while they were at the prom setting up, he was like, oh, cool, a piano. And he started playing a song. And they were like, what the fuck, Billy? Why didn't you tell us you could play piano? Yeah. <laughs> so they were blown away. Um, he'd been on their crew for two years and it never once had they heard him play. So they added him to the lineup on keys. Aww. After recording some demos, the group was offered a deal with Capricorn Records. Capricorn Records was an independent record label founded by Phil Walden and Frank Fenter in 1969 in Macon, Georgia. The label itself is often credited by music historians as the ones who created the Southern rock genre. I mean, yeah. Um, Ronnie in this situation was a lot like Freddie Mercury, who, if you recall, he didn't want to play second fiddle to Genesis. 
Freddie Mercury was like, no, Queen's better than Genesis. Fuck that. Like, we're not getting on their label. Mm -hmm. Um, Ronnie refused the Capricorn deal because he didn't want to play in the shadow of the Allman Brothers, who were already on Capricorn. Um, so the band continued just doing their own thing, their Southern Circuit shows. Cassie was just mimicking, no. deep throating the microphone, and it was really weird because she was I was yawning. yawning. I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> I don't know why. I missed it. Damn. <laughs> I promise you, it was it was not that. It wasn't hot. It was really weird. Just <laughs> <laughs> yawning, Alex. And just like <laughs> I didn't even do that. You did that. Okay. If you check out the Leonard Skinner band member timeline on Wikipedia, you'll see that it looks absolutely nuts. In the early years, three members remained constant. That was Ronnie Van Zant, Gary Rossington, and Alan Collins. They began to have some lineup changes, and they added a second drummer, Ricky Medlock. Um, and then they replaced their bassist temporarily with Greg T. Walker. I had a really hard time keeping track of everybody. Yeah, their band had during, like 10 fucking people. It was yeah, tough. And I like all the uh, documentaries and stuff that I watched. I really had to pay attention to the names flashing across the screen so I could associate face with a name. And that yeah. kind of helped out a little. Yeah, it's such a big fucking band and they've mm-hmm. had so many lineup changes. It, it would, definitely was tough. Uh, finally, in 1972, Leonard Skinner was discovered they had their big break after al cooper of blood sweat and tears another band with 37 members saw them in atlanta Uh, he signed them to sounds of the south and produced their first record which is called pronounced leonard skinnerd which was released on august 13th 1973 this album produced the band's most famous songs give me three steps simple man tuesday's gone and free bird the band had been performing a lot of these songs live already, which is a pretty impressive set list for a first-time band. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Leonard Skinner, well, they were kind of like a jam band. They were actually really prepared in the studio. Not that they were a jam band, but they were kind of jammy. They would just start a song and it would fucking go on forever. When they got into the studio, it was all business. They'd go over songs over and over and over again. Everything was planned out. Nobody was allowed to improvise or noodle. Their producer kind of hated the song Simple Man. He called it weak. And Ronnie took him to his car and made him sit outside until the song was recorded. Obviously, the guy listened. It's one of my top two favorite Skinner songs. And you're good on Ronnie for standing up for it. Producers, obviously, don't always know what's best yeah well because they're generally going i feel like producers are always looking for the hit the pop song Mm -hmm. yeah the radio shit and simple man is an incredible song yeah i love it it's great it's one of the ones i was like that's by them because it's better than sweet home alabama (laughs) it is it's an incredible song like jake said at least he was able to stick with it and you know the producer's word didn't matter in the yeah. long run. Cause imagine if that ha- that song hadn't made it, like I mean, where would the- they have been? That could have literally broke them yeah. at that point in their career. Yeah. That's a really good song. Um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> as we were saying, it's one of their most well-known tracks of all time. This, in addition to Freebird, which despite being over eight minutes long, has received national radio airplay. It hit number 19 on the Billboard charts. The song is also used in Forrest Gump after Jenny shoots heroin and contemplates jumping out of a window of an apartment building. Also also at the end of Devil's Rejects, <laughs> where Captain Spaulding, uh, Baby, and Otis get shot up driving head-on into a police uh, brocade, blockade. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It, was just, it was just murder. Murder, murder that's, that's for the fun. fun part. 
<laughs> All right. Okay, but Jenny, Agree to disagree. shooting up heroin is fine. Giving um, people AIDS. Yeah, look, look. That's pointless. The band scored a no-bang <laughs> slot <laughs> on, uh, on tour with The Who in 1973. Who? Who? Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Beat me to it. <laughs> uh, snowballing their fan base. In 1974, they released Second Helping as an album, which did not disappoint. Sweet Home Alabama Cassie's Fave nope. was released as the lead single, widely believed to be in response to Neil Young's song, Southern Man. Neil Young said in his book, Waging Heavy Peace, A Hippie Dream, that they were writing Sweet Home Alabama actually in response to his song, Alabama. Not uh, in response to Southern Man, because in the song Alabama, he was talking mad shit. And that makes a little bit more sense to me. Um, in Sweet Home Alabama, they say, I hear Mr. Young sing about her. I heard old Neil put her down. Uh, and let's be honest, Alabama sucks. That is phrase. Is that what that is? Yep. That <laughs> phrase did not like make sense. <laughs> no. I had no I was, idea reading this. And I was like, let's be honest. Oh, not, not that. I knew what you're talking about. I didn't know that, that that line was what it was from. Oh, the Neil Young? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you were talking about let's be honest? Yeah. You, the way you wrote it, like, what the fuck? It's I from, knew what she meant. <laughs> he hasn't seen Pitch Perfect. Is no. that what it's from? Yeah. Well, anyways. Okay. There's yeah. qu- quite a debate about the three songs. Uh, I had always heard Skinner's song was a response to something, but I never looked it up until now. Uh, Young's quote from that book is, My own song, Alabama, richly deserved the shot Leonard Skinner gave me with their great al- or their great record. I'm sorry. I don't like my words when I listen to it. They are accusatory and condescending, not fully thought out, and too easy to misconstrue. Uh, pressure started mounting, leading to some more lineup changes in 1975. Bob Burns, the guy who got knocked out with the baseball, OG member, had a mental breakdown, and he left the band and was replaced by Artemis Pyle. I just love his name. Artemis had joined the Marine Corps after high school, and once he was out, he picked up his childhood passion of drums. Artemis had played session drums with Charlie Daniels and the Marshall Tucker bands, um, who often toured with Leonard Skinner. Quite the beardsman back in the seventies. Uh, very handsome, if I do say so. I was about myself. to say he's pretty. He's pretty. Pretty beardy. He's pretty fuckable. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that time you were talking about Bo Burnham? <laughs> Artemis Pyle. You mean all the time? Look no. him up. He's uh, well, I was going to say, imagining him to look like a Greek god or something with the name, it's very regal. But then as you were saying it again out loud, I remember it's, it's Artemis Fowl is what I'm thinking of, like the book series oh, yeah. for children. <laughs> so never mind. Well, he's kind of a babe. Um, they quickly recorded a new album called Nothing Fancy between touring, which didn't chart as well as the previous two albums at one show a guitar tech was arrested and he spent the night in the slammer apparently ed king who was in the band couldn't fix his shit himself so he ended up playing on some old strings and they broke during the show ronnie gave him some shit for the performance so ed just quit he was like i'm not doing this okay anymore. but if you're a guitarist in a touring band you should at least obviously know how to play your instrument but also know how to change the strings that's like yeah. the most basic thing you could do with your instrument yeah so I other wonder, than clean it. i mean he should know how to do that i yes. wonder if he was just like mad because he was supposed to be performing so instead of just taking like a couple minutes to change them he just got pissed off i don't know how long does it take to change guitar strings oh shit for me a long time okay. i don't do it yeah, every day. i mean i guess it's been a few but years you should still know how to do it it yeah. would be like an yeah, experienced not. player probably 
five minutes, not even. Yeah, he wouldn't have to sit the whole show playing old strings. He could have just sat out one of the songs and changed them. Yeah. Unless he didn't know how. There were like six other guitar <laughs> players in the yeah. bands. <laughs> in 1976, Alan Collins and Gary Rossington separately had very serious car accidents over Labor Day weekend. And this hindered Leonard Skinner's recording schedule and caused the group to cancel a few tour dates. Gary was driving a brand new Ford Torino and he was drinking and on Quaaludes. He wrapped the car around an oak tree and Gary was fined $5,000. Ronnie and Alan wrote a song about the incident. That song is called That Smell. Again, I never really paid attention to Leonard Skinner in general, so I never paid attention to the lyrics, but... Yeah, I thought it was just about weed. Yeah. Like, it smells like weed in here. But I read through them, and yeah, it checks out. It says, can't speak a word when you're full of lewds. Say you'll be all right come tomorrow, but tomorrow might not be here for you. Mm. Yeah. uh, Fun fact, and not to make light of these uh, terrible car accidents. He was driving a 1976 Grand Torino Barome. Other famous Torinos include the infamous Starsky and Hutch Grand Torino, same year, 75-76, a.k.a. Striped Tomato. (laughs) <laughs> and the 1972 Grand Torino in the movie Grand Torino starring Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I was yeah. hoping you'd go there. <laughs> that movie's yeah. badass. I liked it. I love Clint Eastwood. His his son is hot. He's hot. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Gary wasn't the only one on drugs, though. Around that time, Leonard Skinner's members had been drinking in addition to doing cocaine and some heroin use to relieved the pressure of performing in front of large audiences. Ronnie's mental health had also taken a nosedive after constant touring and nonstop parties. Ronnie had also just had a daughter in 1976, and he was starting to, like, pull back and reprioritize. The guys convinced him to stay in the band, but he was planning to, like, take it down a few notches. I mean, good on him for realizing what his priorities needed to be. Your mental health should all always be number one yeah but like if you're having a kid you know you need to yeah reprioritize and this was like the prime time for rock star behavior nobody gave a shit what you were doing they just had a free pass to be as crazy as possible oh and they were we'll get to it (laughs) there's more so also in 1976 Skinner started looking for a third guitarist. They needed someone to replace Ed King, the guy who couldn't change his guitar strings, um, after he (laughs) unexpectedly quit in 1975. So Cassie Gaines... No relation. (laughs) Why would you have a relation from the first name? That's what's funny about it. Keep reading. Can you explain the joke further for me? No. Cassie Gaines, a member of the backup singing group, The Honkettes. Honk. (laughs) suggested that her brother Steve jam with the group. <laughs> I like how you wrote honk. I know. <laughs> I was like, it's capitalized. He's going to yell it. <laughs> Just to remind yourself to honk. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> Cassie suggested that her brother Steve come and jam with the group. They didn't expect much, honestly. They were like, oh, yeah, sure. It's your brother, whatever. So he popped in on their May 11th Kansas City date. He They actually let him join them on stage for a song. Before the show, Steve ran into Alan and Gary, who quickly just started making fun of him, assuming he couldn't play guitar. And the sound guy was like, all right, we'll let him play. But if he sucks, we'll just turn his sound down. 
That's what bullies. But also, why couldn't they have just done it to the guy that couldn't change his strings? I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's just true. Cut his, <laughs> like, unplug him. Yeah. Well, it wasn't really necessary for the sound guy to turn him down. It was hard to hear what he was doing since his amp was so tiny. But Gary loved the way that Steve was playing. So soon after, they hired him on as their third guitarist. He can be heard on the live recording, One More from the Road, from the... Fox Theater in Atlanta, which is where I saw Ringo Starr sell his sex toys. I would not, even if he was selling sex toys at that show, I would not have bought them because I was there with my mother. <laughs> Actually, I feel like she would. I feel like she would. She would be like, like "Oh, this interesting. Is funny. I wonder if Don't you know. get one for dad." <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm gonna really jump out of this window. Um, Steve made a great impression on the band and he actually put some wind into their sails for the recording of the new album. Uh, once their latest album street survivors was released in October of 1977, Leonard Skinner set out again for a pretty huge tour with sellout shows. And this album had similar elements to their previous recordings, but had a new maturity to the songwriting it sold 500,000 copies immediately on october 20th 1977 leonard skinnard arrived at the greenville downtown airport in south carolina the convair 240 plane that they had chartered to fly out on tour it was nearly 30 years old and that means it came from the 40s it looked pretty rickety just two days prior, the group saw 10-foot flames shooting out of one of the plane's engines at 12,000 feet in the air. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Uh, the flames lasted for a few minutes while they were flying, and the band surely believed that that was the end. They were able to land safely, and their security manager, Gene Odom, pushed for the pilot and co-pilot to call a mechanic and ensure that the plane was safe. So I watched a video on a channel called Hanging with Gene Odom. It's on YouTube. I believe it was released within the last couple of years, so fairly recent. But Gene says he was arguing with the pilots. Uh, according to him, he saw a big blue ball of flame shoot out of the, uh, the engine at takeoff. Oh, my God. And then he goes on to describe the sound of the engine as they were flying. Like it was, you know, had the engine hum and then it would cut in and out, you know, in and yeah. out. The pilots pretty much uh, just brushed him off, saying everything was fine and they knew what they were doing. So That's reassuring. Yeah. So even after this incident happened, they still decided to go back onto the same plane? Yeah. I would. Um, I wonder if it was just because they were so fucked up that they didn't really care. And so far, they had had brushes with death and were fine. Hmm. So they, you know, are thinking they're young. They're thinking they're invincible. I don't know. I would never. I never. think at this point, though, I think they were pretty clean because uh, Ronnie had his, had his daughter. And that's yeah. when he started changing and kind of got away from the drugs and the drinking. I just can't imagine not caring and like actually getting back onto that fucking plane. It's from the 1940s. When was flight a thing? The 1910s? So that plane is only 20 years after the invention of flight? That's crazy to think about. That's fucked. It's the 70s. You, you need a plane. You need state-of-the-art shit. You're one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah, 1903, the Wright Brothers. Well, fuck that. 1930s plane is like a prototype. It, it's yeah. crazy how quickly that technology developed. That's insane. Yeah, and they're flying in a, in a war plane. 
it's not a war plane, but wartime plane. What the fuck? Why would they even risk it and go on tour with this plane? Right. The band didn't have a great history flying. They were banned from most commercial airlines. A banned band. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the incidents that contributed to this ban was the time that they allegedly tried to throw a road crew member out of a plane. Okay, so when you open the emergency door on a plane, it's supposed to be for when the plane has already landed in something or in some capacity, not while it's in the air. So yeah. were they trying to do it while they were still on the ground? Um Okay, so I what read this story? I read this in one place and I I mean I had seriously I had like eight tabs open up on my computer and yeah. I read it in one place and I wrote it and then once I was trying to get more information I couldn't find the fucking tab that it came sure. from. Sure. And then I tried to look so many times yeah. during this one. <laughs> I tried to look for the story again like by what? by typing in like search terms and I couldn't find it but I read it somewhere that they were you know, not allowed to fly commercially because they had, they just partied on the planes. They were sure. drunk as fuck. They weren't sitting down in their seats when they're like, put on your seatbelt. They were like, nah, bitch, we're yeah. Leonard Skinner. We do what we want. They're just tearing the shit up, ripping the seats out. Um, they, you know, I guess had wrestled this road crew member who maybe the guy who, no, I don't know. The guy who quit? Yeah, I guess. They were like trying to wrestle this guy out. Obviously, I don't think they opened the actual hatch yeah. up, but you know, if there was a scuffle up there on a commercial airline, that would be a fucking problem. Yeah, because, I mean, even if they reach for the door, like, you open that pressurized cabin and the plane Everyone could literally would... explode. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a vacuum. Yeah. It'll suck everyone out. So, like, no. Bye. Yeah, so they they had many issues and they were not allowed to fly on many commercial airlines. So they had to charter their own plane. They opted out of that shit and they got their own transportation so that they could act however crazy they wanted. And after the flames incident... They did decide to upgrade, but they still had one last date in Louisiana. And it was just a 600-mile trip, after all. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? So the Convair 240 was built, like I said, 1947. The third of its kind. So not really a lot of safety runs on these. The plane had around 29,000 flight miles. Not I always hear flight third. hours. Flight hours would that, be that, the pilot. Know, yeah, that's for getting your license and all that stuff. But I do think they measure maintenance intervals, possibly, by flight hours. Well, it, the plane research, the so. plane had a lot of time put in on it, whether it was miles or hours. I'm not really sure, but it had been around 29,000-somethings, and that's a lot of anything. <laughs> Um, so at that point, it was basically antique. It was 30 years old. Aerosmith had briefly used the plane earlier that year, but one of their staff members thought that that plane was a hunk of shit. They were right. Still, Leonard Skinner's manager leased the plane. I mean, where are they? They're just ignoring red flags here. Yeah. <laughs> Literally red fireballs. Yeah. Or blue fireballs. Yeah, I think I think Aerosmith had a technically like a flight crew type of person yeah they that had was inspectors with them and, and yeah and they so were like they were, no fucking mm-hmm. way so luckily they at least had that um apparently everyone was a little bit skeptical of its flight worthiness ronnie especially and he was pretty pissed off at their manager for contracting it uh noticing how despite the fact that skinner was one of the biggest bands in the world peter rudge their manager was nickel and diming them um while 
he himself would typically f- fly first class. I mean, he's I'm so, I'm I'm assuming he had, did not try to throw anyone off of a plane, so he has that privilege to then fly first class if he wants to fly first class. I guess, but I mean, the band's making so much money. Get him a fucking decent transportation yeah, vehicle. Like what? Mm-hmm. So the group planned to ditch the Convair plane once they were in Baton Rouge. They took flight at 5:02 p.m. They made it to altitude with no issues. So once they got up there, you know, everyone was nervous. But once they got to altitude, they were like, all right, cool. So they began partying. They were playing music, celebrating the last flight on the plane, which is a little bit morbid if you think about it. Um, Some of them were playing poker at the back, which turned into a, a very heated game. Leonard Skinner's tour manager, Roy Eckerman, recalled one player ripping the table out of the wall. <laughs> no wonder they could not fly commercially. Limp Biscuits break stuff plays in the background of our room. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, me and Cassie are going to see Limp Biscuit in August. I'm fucking was, pumped. Oh I thought she Why? was joking. <laughs> I was not joking. She was, sent me that and I'm like, have fun. Yeah, I was going to get us all three tickets, but he didn't want to go. <laughs> he didn't even ask me. <laughs> she was like, was, cool, she's going. Burp. Okay. <laughs> I just want to see you in a red hat. Anyways, um, Ronnie was trying to catch up on some sleep. He was laying on the floor in the aisle. And uh, he supposedly he had taken some sleeping pills, too. Like, he was like, I'm trying to get some sleep. You know, you guys can fuck off. And That actually makes sense, yeah. considering how he behaved the rest of mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of a sudden, the engine on the right that had previously shot out the 10-foot flames sputtered in midair and went out somehow the pilots came to the conclusion that they were incredibly low on gas though they said that they had refueled refueled before takeoff in south carolina was there like a leak or something in the tank oh girl we getting there girl artemis pile number one babe was in the cockpit as this happened artemis was no stranger to plane crashes this motherfucker was a pilot. His father was killed in a plane crash along with his friends. He has been in three plane crashes in his life. One when he was a child, one when he was in the Marines, and then the one that was about to happen. Um, as soon as the engine went out, Artemis said that he saw death in the pilot's eyes. Mm-hmm. The pilot, Walter McCreary, radioed the Houston Air Traffic Control Center at 6.42 p.m. and was rerouted to the nearest airport, which they had passed 17 miles ago. Um, They turned the plane around, but then the left engine also failed. So steering shut down. The plane was at 4,500 feet. You know, you think maybe with one engine, you're like, all right, 17 miles, maybe we can do this. But as soon as that turns off, imagine how quiet. Uh, McCreary left the cockpit. He announced to the band, we're out of gas. Put your heads between your legs and buckle up tight. The passengers couldn't believe it. Everyone sat down, buckling in and praying. Gene Odom, their security manager, he woke up Ronnie Van Zant, who walked to the back of the plane to get a pillow. And he came back up front. He was apparently smiling and shaking hands with Artemis. Yeah. Smiling? I don't think he had really any idea what was going on at the time. Sleeping it's like, pills. Yeah, he was on the sleeping pills. Pretty groggy. That's why I thought I, his I, behavior I, was like bizarre yeah. he, sleeping pills make sense he was not taking it seriously had probably had no idea 
uh, anyways, Artemis said that he was basically playing stewardess at the time, uh, or steward, telling people to buckle up and turn things off to conserve power because he kind of knew what was coming. They weren't going to make it to the airport. The pilots were frantically searching for an open space for the plane to land, either in a field or on a stretch of road, but there was nothing but forest. Leonard Skinner's keyboardist Billy Powell recalled it getting eerily quiet, and while the trees got closer and closer, um, that was until they started striking the trees. Tops of trees began tearing into the plane. They ripped off the wings and uh, tore the cockpit off and the tail. So the cabin of the plane ended up kind of skidding and being folded into an L after impact and finally came to a stop. Nearly all of the seats were ripped from the floor with the passengers still strapped in and then thrown forward into a heap amongst the trees. Hmm. Billy crashed through a table head first. His nose was almost completely torn off, but luckily he was at the top of the wreckage. He heard people screaming and crying. He attempted to save passengers trapped under the metal and debris of the fuselage. Fuselage. Of the fuselage. Uh, Several passengers were stuck in trees. Some of them are alive. Some of them are dead. Some TV crewmen named Leslie Hawkins and Bill Sykes were traveling with the band, and they were suspended in a tree with another piece of airplane siding hanging directly above them. So um, the cockpit was also hanging upside down from a nearby tree with pilot Walter McCreary and co-pilot William Gray lifeless, still strapped in their seats. Mm. Van Zant, Steve Gaines, and Dean Kilpatrick died on impact. Steve's sister Cassie was alive, but she was seriously injured, and she died a short time later from blood loss. Yeah, when I was I was watching the interviews and all the documentaries on this, uh, I had to stop and get up and go walk around because I heard one of them was Billy Powell describing she basically died in his and Artemis's arms. She was cut from ear to ear, and the sounds, he was describing the sounds she was making while it was happening and saying she didn't want to die, and it was so, so heartbreaking. Yeah. It, uh, it, yeah, I just I literally got up out of my room. I'm like, I got to go do something else right now. I think right that now. was when you sent us a text message, and you were like, I got to do this later. Probably, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Artemis Pyle and their sound guy, Ken Pedden, and a road crew member, Mark Frank, pulled themselves from the crash and they began to wade through the swamp that they were in for help. Pyle had shattered several of his ribs, but continued pushing through. You know, they were all injured in a fucking plane crash. They were trekking through a swamp and they came up on a fence as the sun was kind of going down. The home that they came up on belonged to a guy named Johnny Moat, who was a dairy farmer. And Johnny heard the crash happen, but he figured that it was probably a car. He started seeing helicopters flying overhead, so he jumped into his truck to investigate. And as he was driving, Johnny heard the cries of the survivors. When he saw Pyle, Pedden, and Frank, he was convinced that it must have been a jailbreak. Hmm. Uh, Johnny drove back to his home and grabbed his shotgun even firing a shot in the air. And the guys started screaming that they were in a plane crash. So uh, Moat got together a redneck crew in four-wheelers and trucks to try and locate the crash site. So he he did end up helping, but I do believe Artemis Pyle 
was shot in all of that. Oh my gosh. It went, I was going to say it's a good thing that they were yelling loud enough and he heard them. Because even if you, you're in the woods, it's dark. Yeah. Someone's yelling at you. Like, yeah, like mm-hmm. this motherfucker was just in a plane crash and you just shot it him. Could have been Jesus a ruse. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So the only good thing to come out of them losing all of their fuel is that there was no fire. Mm-hmm. And this obviously made it difficult to find the crash in the dark, but it did mean that nobody was burned alive, stuck in the wreckage. If that were the case, so many more people would have died. Yeah. Eventually, they were able to narrow in on the crash site and they began pulling bodies out of the debris. Yeah, some stories say they just flat ran out of fuel due to defective equipment and pilot incompetency. Uh, some say they saw fuel being dumped while still airborne, either by pilot error or they knew that they were crashing and were trying to be smart and they were just dumping the fuel in a last ditch effort not to burst into a ball of flames. Well, that would be the first smart thing that those guys did. And uh, the another yeah. interesting thing, the helicopters that showed up, they were actually, I believe they were Coast Guard helicopters on a training mission Oh, so they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And they were able to catch the ground crews attention and mm. direct them to uh, to the, uh, uh, the, the crash site. And they actually sat there and hovered over the crash site and uh, illuminated it for them. So they had light. Yeah. Unfortunately, they they weren't equipped for rescue. At that mm-hmm. time, so they didn't have like the little drop down gurneys and stuff. I, I believe one person may have repelled, if I recall correctly. So, yeah, um, when I found emergency rescue teams from the Coast Guard, National Guard, and local hospital were lighting up the crash site, they brought in a bunch of bulldozers to clear a path. Um, obviously, this was going to take some time. They were pulling people out for hours and random people began to arrive at the site as they heard about the crash on the news. Very interesting documentary done by Emma Harrington on YouTube, uh, interviewing a couple of first responders and a photographer that happened to be in the area. It's very interesting. It's a different perspective hearing mm-hmm. from the first responders that were there yeah, working. They had absolutely no idea who it was. They just went and and for hours, I think it was early in the morning by the time you know yeah. they had finished everything, and nobody told them who they were. They just had no idea. They were just in there working, mm-hmm. so they were doing their thing. Um, but much like with the Patsy Klein plane crash, if you guys remember from season one, People started showing up and stealing things from the site while first responders are still working. Like, people are dying. Yeah. And they just came up to loot, which is so fucked up. I mean, they didn't know who it was either. No, I think they did. That's why they all started showing up. If it was just a plane crash, you wouldn't come. But if you hear Leonard Skinner's plane went down, then you're like, oh, shit, I'm going to go get some stuff. So if the the first responders didn't even know who it was, how did the news reporters know who it was? I think eventually they kind of figured it out because air traffic and whatever, you have to know who's in the air and where they are. But uh, people started showing up. There were around 3,000 people. And they started lifting things from the crash site, including personal belongings and even plane scrap. That's so stupid. Odom, the security manager, wrote, They took my watch, my wallet, my ring, and my money as I lay bleeding on the ground. And personal belongings had been scattered everywhere across the swamp since the band, you know, they were playing poker. All of their valuables were just sitting out on the table. So all their shit got thrown everywhere. 
Once the survivors were rescued, they were brought to Southwest Regional Medical Center. Billy Powell was treated for his nose and broken knee. Mm. Gary Rossington, this poor guy, he broke both arms, a leg, and had punctured his stomach and liver. Alan Collins cracked two vertebrae in his spine and nearly had to have his arm amputated. Artemis Pyle had crushed his ribs and he had a bunch of deep cuts. Gene Odom broke his neck, burned his skin, and was partially blinded by phosphorus from the crash. Yeah, so the, that phosphorus that he was talking about, um, I believe he had ended up under a section of the wing where they had stored flares. Ugh. And I don't know if they, I don't know how, I don't think flares can leak, but if one of them were ignited. If it, if it got set off. Yeah, yeah, if it got set off, like they do seem to drip or, you know, it was above him. So it just kind of fell onto him. It, I believe he lost an eye and it just, Ooh. it burnt him all over. Yeah. Um, Leon Wilkerson was probably the worst. He lost a bunch of teeth. He broke his left arm and leg and he had a bunch of internal injuries and like the bones. That's tough. That's a, that's a tough recovery, but internal injuries, you can literally just die from, um, while he was being operated on Leon's heart stopped twice. Of course, he didn't remember it. He said that he was sitting on a cloud with Ronnie and Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers Band. Dwayne was killed in a motorcycle accident six years prior. Mm. Uh, the deceased were temporarily placed in a morgue at a high school gym oh. um, until their loved ones could identify them. In my research, where where they had crashed, it was super small town so Con- everything country, was multi-purpose. Every, yeah, it was very country, very small town. The, I believe the morgue there literally only had two drawers oh for uh, corpses. Right. So they didn't really have much of a choice. They had to put them somewhere. Jesus. Yep, they were at the high school gym until their loved ones could come and identify them. So Ronnie's dad, Lacey, made the trip with Don Barnes of 38 Special. Lacey identified his son, and then he went to visit the rest of the Skinnerd crew at the hospital. And he and Don told everybody that Ronnie was fine and just told them that they needed to rest and heal. Many of the band members didn't find out that Ronnie had died until days later. I mean, that's a champ move on the dad, though, knowing he just lost his son, but knowing the incredible loss would also affect the other people that were still fighting to right. heal. That's my heart hurts. Really, like, strong of him to keep himself composed and put their recovery first. So Jake also found the original, what is it? It's a photocopy of the flight investigation? Yes, it's the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board Accident Report. It's a photocopy of the original report in a PDF uh, format. And uh, I didn't get a chance to really dig into it. Yeah, if you want to read the full report, it is out there Ooh, it's, for it's, public. It's the uh, original. It's photocopied. It's it's legit. So there were like. 24 passengers, two crew members aboard the aircraft. Two crew members and four of the passengers were killed. 20 others were injured. Damn, I wish I'd found that earlier. The aircraft was destroyed by impact. There was no fire. On that note, there was an investigation into the cause of the wreck, but since the plane was so old, it didn't have any of the equipment to record flight data. It was from 1947. 
because the plane was absolutely demolished after the accident, they didn't have a lot of physical evidence to go on either. So the National Travel Safety Bureau said that the official probable cause was fuel exhaustion and a total loss of power from both engines due to crew inattention to fuel supply. They did find that the right engine, which had malfunctioned days earlier, was burning more fuel than usual. The Bureau pinned the blame on the pilots once more, saying that they failed to monitor the engine instruments for low fuel and quality. I, I mean, they should have been more aware of that, sure, but if the aircraft had faulty equipment, like, how are, how are they supposed to measure that? They, they're pilots. That's literally their job. Like, Interesting. I, th- I mean, that's their job. You're flying this thing in the air. Yeah. I, th- I think you can actually just visually you know, open the top wherever they put the fuel in and look i think yeah there's like a whole thing that you there's a whole inspection you're supposed to do before you fly they should have redundant systems in there where if you have an instrument that's not working you can can at least go physically manually check check. yeah uh there had also been several reports of the pilot and co-pilot passing around a bottle of jack daniels in the cockpit but this claim has been disputed by toxicology reports the band members actually took the whole thing pretty gracefully they never cared to point fingers. They weren't too concerned with why it happened. They just knew that they had to deal with the fact that it had happened. Sure. Pyle says that the band had some responsibility too, going on a plane when they knew it wasn't necessarily safe to fly. As they recovered from their injuries, press had the balls to ask them right off the bat if they would continue to perform. Billy Powell said probably not. <laughs> Yeah, I saw the I saw some of the news footage uh, from that, and it was literally just days after. He's got stitches all over his face, and he's basically being the spokesperson for the yeah. band and being very very strong, like he trying to get the information out. It was, yeah. it was quite interesting. It's like fuck, dude, give him a break. Yeah. Jesus, are you still gonna play Freebird? <laughs> fuck you, asshole. Um, they had just released this album, Street Survivors, which had the band surrounded by flames on the original cover. Teresa Gaines, who was Steve Gaines' wife, she rushed to change the cover art to just a simple black background. Steve was only 28 at the time of his death and was buried with his 29-year-old sister, Cassie, in Miami, Oklahoma. Dean Kilpatrick, their tour manager's grave, can be found in Jacksonville at the Arlington Park Cemetery. Ronnie Van Zant was laid to rest at Jacksonville's Memorial Garden with only Billy Powell in attendance from the band. Charlie Daniels and Donnie Van Zant sang Amazing Grace in his short service. After the crash, Gary Rossington uh, had a, a long road to recovery. He was the one who had broken both arms, legs, wrists, ankles, his pelvis. He was all fucked up. Gary got together with the other members and decided to break up the band forever. He had steel rods placed in his arm and leg. Um, He did return to the stage again once he recovered. And eventually, the surviving band members, Rossington, Collins, Powell, and Wilkeson, did come back together. Not under the name Leonard Skinner. They formed the Rossington Collins Band with a female backup singer from 38 Special named Dale Krantz. So Leon Wilkeson suffered such a catastrophic arm injury that he had to actually reconfigure his bass so that he could play it in like a unique upright style. Yeah. And while they were sleeping on this, you know, they were on tour um, on this Rossington Collins tour. It was like hyphenated. 
He had his throat slit while he was sleeping on the like the bus that they used for, you know, the people that were in Leonard Skinner at the time. And Ed King, who I guess was somebody else. That's the the guy who couldn't change his guitar strings. He claimed Wilkinson's wife slashed Leon. But the wife says Ed did it. And to this day, nobody figured out who it was. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I missed all that. (laughs) My research. Holy shit. Um, The tough times were still not over for the members of Leonard Skinner. Artemis Pyle was going to join up with the Rossington Collins band on drums, but he got into a motorcycle accident. (sighs) Then Alan Collins' wife died in childbirth, uh, causing the new group to cancel their upcoming tour. Yeah, Collins Collins battled with depression, various substance addictions, and law enforcement because he was reportedly arrested 18 times between 1974 and 1985. And also a sidebar, in 1986, Alan Collins got into a car wreck, killing his girlfriend and paralyzing him from the waist down. He pled no contest to DUI manslaughter. He only got two years probation for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Gary broke his foot, so the tour was postponed again. Did they get hexed? Like, there's a lot of stuff happening. Have you seen Final Destination? Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> so, that they're just fucked up all the time. Huh. I think that that's it. Um, so Gary eventually ended up falling for Dale, who was their, the female backup singer they hired for the Gary or the Rossington Collins band. Hi, I'm Dale. Wow. Sorry, that was I couldn't help really it. hot. Um, <laughs> But this raised some tension in the band. Obviously, don't date band members. I think we talked about this with Mama Cass. Um, so they kind of fell away and started releasing their own music together. According to lore, <laughs> the survivors of the crash took a blood oath never to use the name Leonard Skinner again. But they obviously had to have returned to the stage, right? Yeah. <laughs> Despite their pact to disband forever, the group did return to the stage for the 10-year anniversary of the crash in 1987 at Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam. So following this tribute, they took off for a three-year tour, performing Freebird as a tribute to Ronnie with an empty mic stand. So he mm. would have like a scarf or a bandana like tied to it, and they just left the stand open and jammed to the song. And I've seen them do this. I didn't even like Leonard Skinner, and I was like crying the whole show. I was like, this is so sad. <laughs> um, so this is when Ronnie's younger brother, Johnny, or Jonald, um, took over You're on the vocals. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, that tour was very successful, but they had been performing classics and were interested in the possibility of writing new music as Leonard Skinner. So they eventually released an album called Leonard Skinner 1991. Fans were loving the reunion and Skinner continued to perform through the 20th anniversary of their debut album. Alan, being paralyzed from the DUI crash, went on tour as well and his role was to like come out on stage and warn kids about how dangerous it is to drink and drive because he was unable unable to perform colin served as the musical director for the leonard skinner tribute tour in 1990 he died of complications from pneumonia in 1996 ed king had to take a break for a heart transplant the band didn't let him back in afterwards. In 2000, Leon Wilkerson, who was their bassist since 1972, died of emphysema and chronic liver disease. In 2009, Billy Powell was found dead after a suspected heart attack. The group's original drummer, Bob Burns, 
died at age 64 after crashing his car into a tree. Hmm. Ed King died of cancer in 2018. So, really fucking sad. Like, almost everybody in this band has died. Mm. Um, So, there have been some film releases. In 1995, Gary Rossington released Freebird, the movie, which featured documentary-style footage of the band on the road, and then their performance in 1976 at Knebworth, which was Freddie Mercury's last performance with Queen, if I recall correctly. Um, And then in 2020, Artemis Pyle released a film called Street Survivors. So this was last year. This happened during the pandemic. I, I fucking missed the whole thing. So he released his own version of events. It was like a fictionalized... But not really. It wasn't a documentary. It was him and a someone, dramatization. Yeah. What do you call it? Um, it was him and this filmmaker called Cleopatra. And I had to do like a lot of digging because I was like, they just. I was reading an article and they just referenced this person. Like I was supposed to know who the fuck that was, and I was like, like the the historical figure from like ancient Egypt. Yes, but, he worked very hard. Yeah, I was her. like, wow, okay, but yeah. So it was a dramatization based off of like an interview that he had given her and there's a whole lawsuit involved. I'll get to it. Okay. So, uh, street survivors was the name of the film, the true story of the Leonard Skinner plane crash. The movie focuses on pile and his first time with the band. Um, and if you recall, he, he kind of came in a little bit later. He wasn't one of the original members. Right. And so his time with the band leading up to the crash in 1977, the actor, Tom Jenkins, who played the pilot in the film said that the plane burned both oil and gas so jake this is kind of coming back to what you were saying about manually measuring Mm -hmm. Um, the plane burned both oil and gas which had to be balanced properly jenkins says that it you'd actually have to go onto the wing of the plane and check the fuel mixture and that the co-pilot accidentally dumped fuel instead of switching to the reserve tank there was a court case concerning the release of this film with Van Zant and Gaines's family members, along with Gary Rossington. They were suing Artemis over the release of the film, but the courts sided with Pyle, citing it as history, and mm. it was the most important experience of his life. He should be able to tell that story. Yes, however... <laughs> <clears throat> In 2017, heirs of Van Zant and Gaines, as well as Gary Rossington, sued the makers of the film, alleging Pyle was in violation of his agreements, which, I, you know, we love vague internet sentences. So <laughs> obviously I did some digging and I found that the filmmakers of Street Survivor did not and would not represent any authorization from the band and their production their production company wasn't a party to the agreements of pile but that of free speech so they had every right to do it however because they were using you know his direct word Mm -hmm. um and he was saying like oh this is what happened so basically the case went to court and a judge decided that after an expedited trial um, to side with the heirs because the filmmakers use this entire interview to construct the literal screenplay of what happened. And then Pyle was going to get 5% of the film's profit as well as be a co-producer as a credit. Like he was getting all of these extra things and Pyle actually had a contract to narrate the film, contribute original songs for it. But he was also, because he's, it was involved so heavily in the project, it was a violation of like a cease and desist order. Like he couldn't be a spokesperson of the band because like they did not give him permission to do this. And they were using, you know, everybody's names. And so it was basically, um, 
a like, Leonard Skinnerd story, is he authorized to tell the Leonard Skinnerd story? And the no. judge was like, well, he's authorized to tell his story. Right. But he was doing it from the standpoint of like, this is what happened as like the, right. to all of us. And they were like, no, this is your, this is completely your one-sided. Yeah. Yeah. And probably didn't add them on for input or. But like using their names in it and stuff. And it, yeah. the judge was like, nah, you can't do this. Like, Interesting. Sorry. So. Leonard Skinner now uh, in 2018 they embarked on the last of the street survivors farewell tour and Gary Rossington says that the group will no longer tour but they may still play one-off shows here and there in order to end the story on a high note I found a Florida man story that happened May May yes. 9th of 2021. I'd like to read you this article. Sure. It's from the New York Post. <laughs> so the headline reads, Florida man wanted for stealing a trove of Leonard Skinner memorabilia. This free bird could wind up in a cage after stealing about $12,000 worth of Leonard Skinner memorabilia in Jesus. Florida. William James Walker, 38, is wanted for the theft of the trail threat. William James Walker, 38, is wanted for the theft of a trailer filled with rock relics, which were intended to be sold for charity last month, according to police. The trailer disappeared from the parking lot of a Days Inn hotel in Orange Park on April 9th, just one day before the items inside were set to be auctioned off for cancer benefit. The Mm -hmm. Jimmy Van Zant cancer benefit in Middleburg was set to honor late musician Jimmy Van Zant, a cousin of Leonard Skinner, Donnie, Johnny and Ronnie Van Zant. Say their real names. <laughs> Ronald, Donald, and Johnny. Yeah, they all they all died of liver cancer. Whoa. Well, so, they probably were fucking drunk. Yeah. The stolen items included irreplaceable ugh, Nope. These stolen items included irreplaceable mementos from the Southern Rock band as well as night as well as a nineteen fifty seven Les Paul guitar signed by musicians Greg Allman, Brian Howe, Butch but Butch but <laughs> butch trucks and others um we have guitars that are signed by a lot of the band members a lot of them aren't even alive anymore it's stuff that can't be replaced the orange park police department friday said it had obtained an arrest warrant for walker charging him with grand yeah felony grand theft the suspect is believed to be homeless and is known for to frequent hotels in the jacksonville area according to cops he has a tattoo of praying hands on his forearm and a spider inked on his shoulder wow william james walker everybody looking like he looks like his name is william james he looks like the hamburglar (laughs) (laughs) so um that is the really fucking sad story of the leonard skinner plane crash dude i mean even with the last one too it's like what what were we getting ourselves into with this idea because the wendy o williams one was really sad too but her story was really crazy and awesome yeah same with leonard skinner but don't drink and drive and don't like get on airplanes that have fireballs shooting out of the fucking Mm -hmm. engine thank you for listening to us tell this story um Next week, we are going to be talking about, oh, guess what? It's going to be sad. Whitney (laughs) Houston uh, is coming up next Wednesday, so make sure that you tune in for that. And also, um, what should be coming out today as well is Robert Johnson on our Patreon. And if you don't know the story of him, subscribe to Patreon. We're doing a whole season on the 27 Club, and he is starting it off... um, the guy who, you know, famous blues musician who sold his soul to the devil, allegedly. We were unable to reach the devil for comment. But, you know, maybe if you draw a little pentagram on the floor, you can summon him up. 
Tell them to call us. Direct line to hell is down. Yeah, I mean, God, I'm trying so fucking hard, and he won't. He'll never. Alex. He'll never answer my calls. Alexandra, I'm like six 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 six. Stop it! And he won't. Don't answer. you do that in this I house? I the area code. Oh, seven five seven six 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 six. Did you know that there were so many people in this area that like they have to add a second? Mm-hmm. It, instead of seven five seven, they have no more seven five seven numbers left. They had to. They have to make a new one. Oh well, six six six. Six six six, six 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 six. Answer my calls or send us Satan. If you're listening, send us an email. Deathbypodcastteam at gmail dot com. We're really trying to reach out to you. We need your thoughts on some of these things. Um, Patreon season is twenty seven club. We've got Robert Johnson, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, all these Amy Winehouse, Janice Joplin, all these people. Um, so that is going to be a very cheap subscription. Find us on Facebook for all of the details. Search for Death by Podcast Team. On all of your social media platforms. And we also have t-shirts. Yes. So if you want a t-shirt, there's a post on Facebook that you can comment on. All we really need is your email address. And then we can send you a little invoice and you fill it out and give us your address yeah. and shit. And then we give you a t-shirt. It's, it's really, it's crazy how technology works these days. Um, so thank you for listening. And... Um, Rest in peace. Bye. See ya. Music by Demons at Demons Band on Instagram. Artwork by Mike Johnson. Writing and production by Cassie Gardner, Alex Motler, and Jake.